Amen. In the Hebrew letter in chapter 4, after beginning with a warning, let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it, and then points out to us that the gospel preached does not in and of itself deliver or provide rest, because without belief, without faith in those who hear it, There is no comfort, there is no peace, there is no rest. He then shows the glory of the gospel, which declares a Savior who is not so far from man that he can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. A God who is not so far from man that he can't understand the trials, the struggles, the passions of humanity. And then he says in verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now let's remember that the author of this letter, most likely, at least in my opinion, the Apostle Paul, but whoever the author of this letter is, is writing by inspiration. He's writing to Jewish believers who are tempted sorely to turn back from their profession, that is to turn back from Christ, to turn back to the old ways, to the traditions they'd received from their father, a tradition of worship that stood in ordinances and practices that were committed over and over and over again, that only pointed to the coming of a savior rather than resting in and trusting in a successful savior. And the temptation to turn back has come about because of real-life struggles, real-life events that have occurred in their experience. These are people who live in Judea in a time when they have been set against the governing empire of Rome, and they are in physical danger. And there is a, a nationalistic zeal that is taking over the community of Judea that says, God is our God, and he's obligated to bless and defend us, the Jews. And if we stand together, and if we double down on our tradition and our faith and our religion, God is obligated to come to our defense and protect us from these pagans that have ruled over us. And these Christians are caught up in this, because after all, they are Jews nationalistically. They were brought up. As Hebrews, with all of the Old Testament law handed down, with all of these traditions and these ceremonies and these ideas. But when they professed faith in Jesus Christ, there was a challenge to that. Something that said, this is the one that should come. And this is this new covenant that was promised. And this is this which is greater than the First David, this is the super David, the one that should come. This is that prophet Moses spoke of who would come after him, who was better than he was. And this made a difference in their lives. But now years have gone by. And again, this this change geopolitically is going on and they're afraid and they're tempted. They're tempted to turn back. 
So the apostle writes this epistle and he begins by encouraging them with the person of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, he says he is the image of God. He is the son of God. He is deity. He is God. And he says not only that, but he became flesh. To which of the angels at any time did he say, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. This is the son of God who was obedient to death. He really came and he really showed his love for his people. And then in chapter 3, he begins to say, You've received this heavenly calling. You've received this gift from God, this knowledge of Jesus Christ. So what are you going to do with it? Don't think because you've received it that there's any guarantee that you'll retain it. And he points back to their history of which they're so proud. He says, remember your fathers who followed Moses out of Egypt. They received deliverance through the flood. They were baptized in the picture as they passed through the waters of the Red Sea and the cloud was above them. And they received in that a good profession. But he says, how many of them entered into the land that was promised them? How many of them entered into his rest? Not many. As a matter of fact, only those who were very young and two men over 40. Because everybody else refused to enter in because of unbelief. So he challenges them with this crime of unbelief. He says, don't do like your fathers did. Chapter 3 closes out, to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but unto them that believe not. So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Serious words. But then he says, we have something they didn't have. We have a great high priest. We have a great high priest who has entered into the heavens. Seeing this truth, understanding this truth, understanding that we have Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Hold fast. Stand our ground. Don't let go. Don't be turned aside. Don't swerve to the side. Let us hold fast our profession. Because our high priest is not one who can't be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. This is that high priest who understands what we're going through. He understands our passions. Jesus Christ is God, but Jesus Christ is man. And we read of him, he was tempted in all points like as we, yet without sin. Understanding that, let us come boldly To the throne of grace. That is let us come to him. To the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see the first thing is for us to realize we can't stand on our own. And the strength to hold fast our profession doesn't reside in us. But in him. And the scripture gives us vivid illustrations of this. And some of the heroes that are set forth in the scripture. You remember the Apostle Peter. Whenever you think of a profession of faith, his name should come first and foremost to your mind. Because he was a man to whom was given a good profession. We're all familiar with Matthew 16. Jesus said, whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? The Apostle said, well, they say a lot of things. 
Okay, they're all wrong. He's not a prophet. He's not John the Baptist raised from the dead. He's not any of the saints of old raised again. He's none of the things that they imagine. Who do you say I am? Thou art the Christ, Peter answers, the son of the living God. Jesus says, you're right. And you know this not because flesh and blood revealed it to you, not because I said so, not because anyone else told you, but because it was revealed to you by my Father which is in heaven. That's why you believe. And that's true of anyone who believes from that day to this. In fact, Jesus said to Thomas, who was doubting when he professed his faith after Jesus' resurrection and said to him, my Lord and my God, Jesus says, you're blessed because you see and you feel me and you believe on me. But more blessed are they who see not yet believe. So of Peter, he says, you're blessed. You're blessed because my father has revealed to you who I am. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter had a good profession. Jesus went on to tell him, I'm going to establish my church upon this rock, this foundation. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it's a good thing because I myself am going to die. And Peter stumbles at that knowledge. He says, no, Lord, I won't allow it. Jesus says, it's not your choice. Get behind me, Satan. Thou savorest not the things which be of God, but the things which be of men. A good profession. There were challenges to Peter's profession in the days ahead. He professed faith in Jesus Christ along with all the other disciples. And they walk along behind him and journey with him as he conducts miracle after miracle. As he speaks words of truth as no man ever spake before. But his enemies abound and they desire to kill him. You remember in John's gospel where, uh, well before we get to that. So they, they follow after and Jesus is received by multitudes who invariably turn away. And there's opportunity for the disciples to turn aside. In John chapter 6, Jesus preaches his gospel, but he preaches it in such a way that it challenges the expectations of the congregation and the audience. First, he tells them, you follow me because you want to eat of the food that I provide for you. You follow me because of miracles. You follow me every reason except because I'm the son of God. But he says, I am, and I am the bread that came down from heaven. Better than Moses' bread, better than the manna that God gave him in the wilderness, I am the bread of life. And unless you eat of me, unless you partake of me, unless you partake of my suffering, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, unless you're one with me, then you'll have no part with me. And this multitude of greater than 10,000 people, they vanish. They walk away. They say, we've had enough of this guy. It's not worth it to follow him if it means suffering, personal involvement. It's not worth it for the food that we're eating. It's not worth it for the healings that we're seeing. And Jesus turns to his disciples who are now just a few. And he says to them, will you also go away? And Peter illustrates for us here what it is to hold fast to our profession that holding fast, that idea of holding, it conveys more than just holding on to something. It's not just picking it up and holding it. No, it's grasping it for life. It's the image that's presented when you think of someone who's holding on to a rope dangling above a great crevice. They're holding on as though their life depends on it. And that's what Peter reveals here. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. You've got the only words that matter. You're the only way to the Father. 
Peter holds on when he could turn aside, holding fast to his profession. And then you have other examples. As Jesus begins his journey uh, toward Jerusalem in John chapter 11, this is a time when he's heard that Lazarus has been sick and Lazarus has died and he's about to be involved in one of the most obviously miraculous works of his ministry. The disciples point out to him in verse 8 of chapter 11 and say to him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee and thou goest thither again. And Jesus essentially says, yes. He says, our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. And understanding that he's going to go, in verse 16, Thomas says unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas says, going toward Jerusalem, going to Bethany, it probably means the Savior's going to die. He's probably going to his death, but here's a profession. Here's a holding fast. He says, let's go with him that we may die also. Of course, they do go. The miracles perform. Shortly after that, Jesus arranges for the, the room where they're going to eat the Passover together. They go and they eat the Passover. And that night they go out to the garden and there Jesus prays and the disciples sleep. And finally, Jesus comes out from his time of prayer and he says, they're here. The one is here that shall betray me. And Peter has already said that night, Lord, I will go with you. I will stand by you even unto death. And sure enough, the armies of the Jews come and Judas before them, he places a kiss on the cheek of the Savior, betraying him. This is the one you're after. And Peter draws out his sword, planning to fulfill his word. Peter cuts off an ear, no doubt striking for the head of the high priest's servant. Jesus says, put away your sword. Puts the ear back on the head of the one who's lost it. And Jesus says... If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. So Peter's profession, it's strong, right? Peter says, Lord, I'll go with you to the death. I'll fight for you. I'll defend you. No man will lay a hand on you. And Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you that thy faith fail not. And here Peter is the same night. Oh, Jesus said something else, right? What did he say? Peter, for all of your bluster, for all of your boasting about how you'll never betray me, I say to you, before the cock crows three times, before the cock crows twice, rather, this night, I say to you, thou shalt betray me thrice. Peter doubts the Lord. Peter says, no, Lord, I'll follow you to death. And here in the garden, we see the scene, but Peter now stumbles. Why? Because God's way and his way are still not the same. It's not that Peter doesn't believe. Oh, he believes. It's not that Peter doesn't in his mind think I'm going to hold fast because he does. It's because Peter is ready to fight and to die. With sword in hand. And the Lord essentially disarms him. 
The Lord for whom he's willing to die says, Peter, put away your weapon. It's not time to fight. And then Jesus goes willingly with the army that is there to destroy him. In fact, the the voice of Jesus, the power of Jesus so strong that they fall back as dead men when they come to assault him. And then Jesus goes willingly with them. And we have this picture of Peter following after. They take him for a mock trial and there they tell all kinds of lies about him and give reasons why he should be put to death. And Peter is there warming himself by the fires of the enemy, beholding what's being said and done to his Lord. And he feels as though he has no strength, no ability, nothing left to fight for because God's way and his way are not aligned. And then a servant girl says, hey, I recognize you. Aren't you one of those Galilean followers of the prisoner of Jesus? And Peter says, no, no, that's not me. I don't, I don't know him. And again, he's confronted. Aren't you one of his disciples? No, no, I don't know him. A third time. Hey, aren't you a Christian? Aren't you a follower of Christ? He curses with a loud voice, says, I know not the man. What is that? That's a denial of his profession. This one who held so strong, so fast, who was so determined, he would never betray him. He would never deny him. There was nothing else to cling to but Jesus Christ and the reality of who he was. And here this man is saying, I don't know him. And if we were like Peter before that night, we would be those who look upon this story and this man and say, what a fraud. What a sham. What a terrible person. And no doubt Peter thought of himself that way from time to time. But the message is this. Peter was a man. and He was frail. And he was tempted. And before we're too quick to criticize, we ought first to recognize that we're no different ourselves as we seek to pursue the life that we have in Christ Jesus. But thanks be to God, we don't have a priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, with the frailty of who that we are. We have a great high priest who was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And that high priest, having entered into the holiest of all with his own blood, having poured out his life, For each of those for whom he came, having poured out his life for Peter, he rose from the grave triumphantly, declaring righteousness, imputed to those who are sinners, and covering that sin of unbelief that Peter exhibited. He rises, he reveals himself, and some days later, Peter and the other disciples are out fishing 
And Jesus Christ comes to the shoreline and waves at the boat. Peter says, who is it? Someone says, it's the Lord. He jumps out of the boat. He swims to the presence of the Savior. In John 21, we read that Jesus sat down by a fire where some fish were cooking and spoke to Peter and said, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Not once, not twice, three times. And Peter professes faith, professes love, devotion, a passionate love for the Savior. Yea, Lord, thou knowest I love thee. Jesus says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. He doesn't stop there. Peter, there's a time coming when they're going to carry you where you don't want to go. And they're going to bind you. And they're going to kill you. Peter looks around and says, what about John? Jesus says, that's not your concern. Follow me. The remainder of Peter's life, there were stumbles. There were times of doubt. But Peter's eyes are fixed on that destination. What is it? It's God's will in his life of how he's going to magnify Jesus in his own body. His death which the Lord has promised him. And he talks to us about that later in his epistle. Peter's given to us an example of what? Of one who held fast their profession, even in weakness, even though the temptation was real. That's important for us to realize. So how does he address this to these Hebrews who are threatening to turn aside from their profession? He says, look at your high priest, your great high priest who's successful, who's passed into the heavens. Look to him and recognize that he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. That is recognize that we can't stand fast on our own. We can't stand on our own ability or strength. We can't think it all out. We can't understand it all. We need to trust because that's what faith does. It trusts. And that means when our way doesn't work out, when the way we imagine it's going to go is not God's way, we simply acknowledge that his way is better than our way. And that applies in every aspect of life. What happened to Peter? Well, Peter's dearest friend, the one he depended on, the one that he believed firmly was going to sit on an earthly throne and rule over Israel is determined to go to a cross and there die. And Peter can't handle that. That's too much for him. He says, I'm going to fight. I'm going to be a soldier in the Lord's army. I've got this. And Jesus says, no, put away your sword. You don't get to do things your way because my way is better. And Peter then is tempted. He's tempted to turn aside. He's tempted to give up. What does the writer of the Hebrew letter say by inspiration? Come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What does the grace of the Lord do for us when we come to him by faith? When we come to him when we're struggling, when we're tempted to turn aside, when we're tempted to give up hope. When we can't see the way before us. 
We come boldly to his throne and we say, Lord, I'm weak. And Lord, I don't know. And I don't understand. And Lord, I thought you were working. But it's not working out the way that I thought it would. And we know the weakness can't be his. So we begin to doubt everything we thought we understood. What do we do? We come boldly to his throne of grace. And we beg. We beg for mercy. Hebrews chapter 10. Remember chapter 4. Let us therefore come boldly to his throne of grace. Hebrews 10. 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast. The profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. Wow, do you see the connection there? Having boldness. Boldness to enter into the holiest. That is the presence of God. How? By the blood of Jesus Christ. Because we know that his blood was shed for me. We know there's a relationship there. And we know his righteousness is imputed to me. So I don't come to God in my own righteousness because it's like filthy rags. And I don't come to God because I think he needs me. I come to him because I know that I need him. And I know through Jesus Christ he is there for me. So I come boldly by the blood of Jesus. A new and living way which he consecrated through his flesh. That is when he died for us. You see, Peter was working to prevent the death of Jesus Christ, but Jesus loved him enough that he didn't let Peter stand in his way. Jesus Christ went intently to the cross, there to suffer what Peter could not suffer, there to suffer what you and I could not suffer, there to pay for our sins, literally in his own body, and there to take his righteousness and apply it to your account. That we might be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What is that full assurance of faith? That is an absolute confidence that we are in Christ Jesus. That we have access to that throne of grace. And that there is mercy to help in our time of need. How do I know that's what he's talking about? How do I know it's the same idea? Well, he says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. That is, let's not be turned aside, but let's keep our eyes fixed on him. Let's hold fast to this, this lifeline, this, this reality that we need him. Hold fast. The profession of our faith without wavering. Parenthetical here, for he is faithful that promised. Again, how do we hold fast? Because he's faithful. We hold fast our profession because he is faithful that promised us this rest, this hope, this grace, this help. And let us consider one another to provoke to love and to good works. Let us consider 
one another. The idea here, consider one another, is the same as when that word is used of Jesus Christ in chapter 12. Let us consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. That is, give thought to the experience that we each are experiencing. The struggles that we're undergoing. We have a high priest who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. How can we not be touched by one another's infirmities? The realization. He says in another place, there's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Let us consider one another. And in doing so, let's provoke one another to good works. Let's encourage one another, build each other up, direct each other back onto the course. Hold fast your profession. Consider one another to provoke into love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. How are we going to exhort one another? How are we going to provoke one another to love and to good works? One way is by encouraging each other to meet together with the saints. There's strength in our fellowship. There's strength in our numbers. There's strength in our shared experience and shared devotion to Jesus Christ. Don't assume that your brother and your sister don't have the same struggles that you do. Rather, assume that they do whether they reveal them or not. You pray for one another, assuming the worst of one another. Why? Because you know what's in your heart. You know what you're struggling with. Assume that your brother and your sister are struggling in the same way. Pray for them and provoke them. Provoke them to love and to good works. Encourage them in a way that is right. So often we're so self-centered and self-focused as Christians. We think we're fighting the good fight. We're struggling to do what's right. And everybody else just has an easy path. No, they don't. We're all trying to look better than we are to those around us. Well, even as you have a high priest who is touched with the feelings of your infirmities, be touched with the reality of the infirmity of your brothers and sisters. Be transparent one with another and provoke to love and good works. Encourage your brother and your sister not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And you yourselves don't forsake the assembling. Obviously, you're here this morning. You're not forsaking the assembly. That's good. But make that assembling of yourselves together something that's meaningful, that's worthwhile. You're coming together to worship the Lord, yes. To receive his word, yes. To rejoice in his word, yes. But also in fellowship one with another. To communicate good things. To encourage one another. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. There the idea is daily communication. Don't just remind each other at the end of the day today. We'll see you here next week. Communicate during the week. Why? Because the temptation to turn aside, the temptation to skip services next Sunday, the temptation to turn aside from good works and, and cave into some, some sinful lust, that's not likely to happen next Sunday morning. That's something that's going to work out through this entire week ahead. Communicate with one another. Recognizing that we all have these temptations. 
We all have these desires. So much the more as you see the day approaching. The idea there is simply this. The temptation to do wrong increases as the opportunity presents itself. And the temptation to skip services next week is not going to be so great today as it is next Sunday morning when you wake up and you don't feel like getting out of bed. Or next Saturday evening when you're deciding to go and do something and stay up all night. So much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. That's probably a hard verse for us to consider and to look at, and it should be. It's a fearful thing. What's he saying? He says, with truth comes responsibility, with knowledge comes responsibility, and with profession comes responsibility. If we know to do good and we do it not, to us it becomes truly sin. Oh, it was sin before, but we know what it is. And if you know that Jesus Christ gave himself for your sins and you choose to sin anyway, then what you're doing is you're literally trampling on that blood that was shed for you. And how do you think? How do you think God, who gave his son for you, will respond to such despiteful treatment? You should think about that. You're called upon to think about that. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God? And hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, done despite unto the spirit of grace. He closes out the paragraph saying it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hold fast your profession. The scripture is full of Stories of those who, having believed, turned aside. But then we have stories of those who turned aside and came back. What a blessing that is. You can't read the story of David, who is described in such great, great, great language. A man after God's own heart. The man who, though he was anointed king, ran for years before the sitting king. And having opportunity time after time to take the king's life and assume the throne. Said, I'll not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. I'll not do it. What a righteous man. What a good man. What a man of faith. What a profession. But then presented with the sight of one woman that didn't belong to him. He was willing to give up that profession, give up that identity, fall into the sin of adultery, which led to the sin of murder and deceit, which led in many ways to the ruin of his kingdom. 
But that story isn't left there. That man who counted as nothing the covenant love of God, who in the moment swerved aside and turned aside from his profession, is brought back when the words of the prophet say, Thou art the man. He's broken. He pins the words of the song. Begging, cleanse me, renew me, restore me, and make me whole. We have a high priest who knows our infirmities, who knows our weakness, and we're promised. That those temptations common to men, which are common to each and every one of us, not one will enter into our life, but the Lord will make a way of escape. You say, well, the way might have been there, but I didn't take it. And I fell. And I turned aside. Well, so did Peter. He said, I know not the man. Wherever you find yourself today, in your walk with the Lord, If he gave you a great profession, that's evidence his spirit worked in your heart and he gave you life in his son. And that's a connection that can never be severed. So your sin has separated you from your God and your identity in him. What now? Turn back to him. Acknowledge your sin. Confess your sins. What does his word say? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He's faithful. He's just. He is faithful. What does the Hebrew writer say? He says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. The idea continues there in Hebrews chapter 12. When he says, let us lay aside every weight. Let us lay aside the sin which does so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. You don't know the path that your race may follow. The idea here is not of a sprint, it's of a marathon. It's a long and winding path. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus. Keep your eyes on the prize. That was the Apostle Paul's mindset as he wrote to the Philippian church. What did he say? That I may win Christ and be found in him not having mine own righteousness. That I may win Christ. Keep your eyes on the prize, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Then this expression, you have not yet resisted unto blood striving Against sin. 
What is it to hold fast to your profession? It is to strive against sin. To hate sin the way God hates sin. To love righteousness the way that he loves righteousness. And to recognize that your righteousness is Jesus Christ. If you are dead with Christ, you are dead to sin. If you're alive in Christ, you live to righteousness in him. You have not yet shed your blood striving against sin. So what's the message? Keep on fighting. Hold fast. Hold fast to your profession. What is your profession? Is your profession of faith in Jesus Christ that because he died for you, you're now holy and you're now righteous and you're now perfect in him? No, that's not your profession. Your faith is this, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That Jesus Christ gave himself to save his people from their sins. That Jesus Christ has made me alive in him. And the life that I now live, I don't live according to the flesh. Your profession of faith in Christ is I now live in Christ Jesus and I want to strive to be like him. I want to strive to serve him. And your profession of faith in Jesus Christ is not revealed in the fact that you don't ever sin. It's that when you do sin, you acknowledge the sin. And you despise the sin. And you turn away from the sin and you seek righteousness in Christ. And the wonderful, wonderful story of the faithful in Christ Jesus is that that day when we're called to stand before the great throne of God's judgment... And he separates his his sheep from the goats. I don't normally walk around that much. That's why I could break something. Uh, When he separates his sheep from the goats to the sheep on the right hand, he's going to say, come, you blessed of my father, inherit a kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And without exception, our response is going to be, what did we do? When did we do it? We're going to be dumbfounded that sinners like us could dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And the sobering thing is that on the left hand are going to be there those who say, when didn't we do what's right? Why don't we deserve a home in heaven? Jesus Christ reveals himself in each of those whose profession is one that doesn't depend upon themselves but solely upon him and whose continuance in faith, whose continuance in obedience, whose continuance in his word is secured not by their own commitment or by the words that they speak, but by the continuance of the Holy Spirit, drawing them ever nearer to him. And through every temptation, providing a way of escape that means we don't stay down in the mud. We don't stay down in the dirt, but we're drawn back to 
our Father's house, there to praise him forever. What a blessing it is this morning to participate in, to witness one of the two great ordinances, visual ordinances that Christ has given to his church, that of baptism, which is a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. It's a commitment to walk in newness of life. It's a commitment that says the participant is acknowledging a change a change made in them by the Holy Spirit, a change that will continue for the remainder of their life. So, Amy, as you do this, it's for us to witness. It's for us to witness and to, if we've already professed ourselves faith in Christ, to see in this image his burial and his death. And to recognize that was for you and it was for us and we have that in common. And when you come out of the water, it's a picture of Jesus Christ walking out of that grave and ascending up on high. And the Apostle Paul applies it so clearly in the Colossian letter when he says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. So baptism is a profession by the individual who is participating in it, that you're going to walk from this day forward in Christ Jesus, and you're going to seek the things that are above. But it's a reminder to all of us who have also been baptized that our objective should not be the things of this earth, and our passion shouldn't be here beneath. But they should be to seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. We should be encouraged. We should be admonished. We should be reminded what to hold fast our profession. And there's a mutual responsibility. Because when you emerge from the waters of baptism, there is a commitment to hold every one of your fellow believers accountable to our profession. And from us to you to hold you accountable, to admonish you, to exhort you, to recognize that we together are sinners. But unlike the mass of humanity, we're sinners saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there's an obligation found in that, that we hold fast our profession, that we walk as those who are alive in Christ. And that means alive forevermore. Because those who are raised in Jesus Christ in that first resurrection, the second death has no power. That means this fellowship and this sanctification, it's everlasting. It is in a very real way a picture of our home in heaven that we're going to enjoy. And our fellowship here on earth it's just a foretaste of that which is to come. Thank you for your time and attention this morning. I pray the Lord's blessing upon his word.